All right, so on to the American Revolution, and this is going to run around 1775 through 1783. So you've got these colonial leaders that are basing their calls of resistance to Britain on the arguments about the rights of British subjects, the rights of the individual, and the local local traditions of self-rule, which is what they were trying to be. They were trying to be more autonomous. And also the ideas of the Enlightenment that are going on over in Europe. So we'll start with the Second Continental Congress. That's going to be May 10th of 1775. All 13 colonies are going to be present. But the delegates were still not interested in actual independence, but they really wanted to redress some of these colonial grievances. And this is a relatively conservative position at this time. The most significant act of Congress was this decision for war and the election of George Washington to lead the Continental Army. The funny thing about the whole reasoning for him leading the Continental Army is he actually showed up in the uniform that he wa- that he wore in the... Um, what was it? The French and Indian War, which we discussed that, you know, he kind of lost. Anyway, so he shows up looking all, you know, military-esque. So they decide that he should be the general. Yeah. Fun facts there. Anyway, so his selection was, uh, you know, largely political and just kind of sad. Uh, the Northerners wanted to bring Virginia in, the most populous colony, and he was a Virginian. So then we get to the Declaration of Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. That's all one declaration. Now, this was written by Thomas Jefferson and a man named John Dickinson. Uh, They drafted a second set of appeals to the king and the British people for redress of these American grievances. And this is the intermediate step toward the Declaration of Independence because you had the Declaration and Resolves from the First Continental Congress that was that, that earlier step. Now... This Declaration of Causes, blah de blah de blah is going to outline a plan to raise money and to create an army and a navy because, as of right now, they only have a militia and, you know, it's kind of this little ragtag group of people that don't really know what they're doing. This is going to lead us to the Olive Branch Petition. This is going to be written mainly by John Dickinson. And this is going to be a last-ditch effort. This is going to be the last thing that the moderates in the Continental Congress are going to try to do to prevent an all-out war. They're going to pledge the loyalty to the crown, and they want to restore this peace. They're going to try to appeal to King George III to convince Parliament to reconsider those intolerable or the coercive, as uh, Britain was calling it, the coercive acts. King George III is going to refuse to even recognize Congress because then he would have to recognize the the legislature, meaning he would have to recognize that the colonies had their own government that had been set up outside of the the monarchy or the parliament. So obviously this whole like debacle is going to continue on. So let's start off with the earlier battles. You had Ticonderoga and Crown Point. These are both going to be in May of 1775. This is going to be a, a relatively small group under the I wouldn't say guidance. Jess, what word would I use? Not tutelage. Command. Command sounds good. So this is going to be a a relatively small force. It's going to be under the command of Ethan Allen and uh, his group, the Green Mountain Boys of Vermont, and Benedict Arnold as well of Connecticut. They're going to surprise and capture this British garrison in upstate New York. The British cannons and munitions are going to be transported to Boston, where the rebels are eventually going to force the British to abandon New England because they stole their toys. 
Then we had Bunker Hill, and this is June 17th of 1775. So what happened with this is the Colonials are going to seize Breed's Hill, and they're going to command a strong position overlooking Boston. Around a 1,000 um, incoming Redcoats and a very ill-conceived like frontal assault, they're going to be mowed down by these 1,500 American riflemen. There's going to be around 140 Americans killed and over 440 wounded. The Americans are going to run out of gunpowder. They're going to be forced to abandon Bunker Hill in disorder, which, I mean, actually, it's kind of breeds hill. Basically, people got confused. It was like when Columbus came over. He called it the wrong thing. It was supposed to be Bunker Hill. It was actually Breed's Hill, but we call it Bunker Hill. That alleviates some confusion. All right. This is going to be viewed as an American victory because of Britain's heavy losses. This is also the bloodiest battle of the entire Revolutionary War. Um, after the cannons from Ticonderoga were positioned on Dorchester Heights overlooking Boston, the British Army are going to leave the city to conduct the war from New York. So, bye-bye Breeze Hill, bye-bye Bunker Hill. Following Bunker Hill, or Breeze Hill, uh, King George III is going to proclaim that the colonies are in rebellion. Like, this is official now. This is August 23rd, 1775. And this was a tantamount to a declaration of war against the colonies. So this is where we're finally getting into Britain is recognizing that we are actually fighting. We're not just throwing a hissy fit. King George is going to hire around 18,000 Hessians. And those are those German mercenary soldiers. And they're going to be used to support the British forces. Uh, Americans were shocked that the king would actually hire soldiers that would be, like, their reputation was for brutality. And the colonials saw the war as a, more as a family conflict or even a, a civil war. Because, you know, this is a war between, well, technically Englishmen. Sorry. Englishmen that were just in the the colonies versus Englishmen who were in England. October 1775, the the colonists are going to fail, fail to successfully invade Canada. Uh, the invasion is actually going to postpone a large British offensive, which eventually is going to contribute to the U.S. victory at Saratoga in 1777. Now, this whole idea of independence, this shift to independence, most Americans still did not desire independence in early 1776 as they were still proud to be British citizens. They instead sought better treatment within the empire. They weren't trying to get out. Many of the evangelical Protestants saw the colonial society as possessing a unique moral mission to reform the world and that the blessings of liberty were part of that mission. So the whole Great Awakening had played a really significant role in this view. Most sought to have their natural rights respected by the mother country as outlined by John Locke. We talked about him a little bit in world history and uh, AP Euro. Most believe that a social contract and the, uh, the general will of the people as outlined by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and this R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U guaranteed that the colonial should be free from the perceived tyrannical rule of the British Empire. And then you're going to have a, a lot of them that will believe in free trade or that laissez-faire. 
as they had in effect experiences during that salutary neglect. And this is going to be later articulated in the 17, in 1776 by Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations. Now, the reason for the shift into this whole idea of, you know, independence away from the colonial loyalty. First off is that hiring of the Hessians, because like I said, this was a shock to them because the Hessians were known for their cruelty, for their brutality. And as I said before, they thought this was going to be a family affair. Then there was the burning of the New England towns of Falmouth, F-A-L-M-O-U-T-H, and Norfolk, N-O-R-F-O-L-K, by the British. And this is going to really upset a lot of the colonists. I mean, obviously, they're burning your, you know, towns. Now, the governor of Virginia is going to promise freedom to slaves who would fight for Britain. And this, is, this persuaded many of the southern colonial elites, especially the plantation owners, to join New England in the war effort because they were losing what they believed to be their, their property. Yippee. All right, so let's talk about Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine did that pamphlet called Common Sense. It's going to be published in early 1776. And it's going to be an instant bestseller in the colonies, and it's going to serve as an effective propaganda in favor of independence. So the main ideas were that Britain's colonial policies were inconsistent. In inconsistent. Inconsistent. Sorry. And independence was the only course of action in order to correct this. Now, nowhere in the physical universe did a smaller heavenly body control a larger one. So why should itty-bitty England control the, you know, enormity of North America? And this is going to appeal to those who are... Sorry about that. This is going to appeal to those who are inspired by Newton's theory of universal gravitation and the idea of natural law. And to... To Thomas Paine, the king, King George III, was nothing more than the royal brute of Great Britain. Also, America had a sacred mission, and this was that whole moral obligation to the world in order to set up independence, a uh, democratic republic, and to be untainted by the association with a corrupt, you know, corrupt monarchy, a.k.a. Britain. It also persuaded Congress to go all in for independence so the colonies could not hope for aid from france unless they officially declared their independence because france could not be involved if it was you know an actual civil war so basically colonial reconstruction they did not want to deal with that on june 7 1776 richard henry lee is going to propose independence at the second continental congress that's going to be in philadelphia he basically said, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And the motion was later adopted on July 2nd, 1776, after a whole mess of deliberation. A formal explanation was needed to rally resistance at home and invite foreign nations to aid the American cause, especially France. So that's part of the reason why some people say that July 4th should be uh, celebrated on July 2nd, because that was when the... Declaration of Independence or, you know, the whole idea of us being independent from England was actually adopted July 2nd. Congress is going to appoint a committee on independence to prepare an appropriate statement shortly after Lee's speech. And this task was given to a committee that chose Thomas Jefferson to write a draft of the Declaration. You also had Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston that are going to help edit this document. Now, in Congress, the debate and the amendment 
are going to precede its adoption. Now, this is going to be especially an anti-slavery clause, which was heavily modified with, with some portions being removed. Uh, Jefferson had blamed England for continuing the slave trade despite colonial wishes and despite his own, you know, his, him having his own slaves. Uh, a lot of the Southerners in particular still favored slavery, and they dismissed the clause. It was supposed to be there, though. The Declaration was not addressed to England. <clears throat> the United States didn't expect a response from the king anyway, so... And the date of the vote for independence was July, 17, July 2nd, 1706. And then the wording of the Declaration of Independence was formally approved on July 4th. And that's why we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. It had three major parts, the Declaration of Independence. First, you had your preamble. And this is going to be heavily influenced by John Locke. It stated the rights of colonists to break away if natural rights were violated. So that whole life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But John Locke said property. It also stated that all men are created equal. That one's a little fuzzy. Uh, the second part was a list of 27 grievances of the colonies. And this is going to be seen by Congress as the most important part, not the preamble or the formal Declaration of Independence. Uh, it underwent the most changes from the original draft. There was 24. It charged the king with imposing taxes without the colonial's consent of eliminating a trial by jury because, remember, sometimes you wouldn't even have one or they would be sent back. Uh, the military dictatorship, maintaining these standing armies during peacetime. That was supposed to be a no-no. That was even in the Magna Carta. Uh, cutting off trade. They weren't able to freely trade with other countries. Burning towns, as we'd already talked about, Falmouth and uh, Norfolk, hiring mercenaries, the Hessians, and inciting American Indian violence or Native American violence. But honestly, I think it was the colonists that did that because they continued to push into the territories. But I digress. Then the last part was the formal declaration of independence. So this officially broke ties with England. It made us the United States and it made us an official independent country now <clears throat> the result of this we ended, we could now get foreign aid from france and others could now be successfully solicited before that again we were just part of a you know uprising all right so let's get into these patriots and the loyalists so john adams claimed that a third of colonists were patriots a third were loyalists and a third were neutral and this number obviously is difficult to verify but it's you know somewhat useful so you would have your loyalists also known as your tories and they're going to account for about 20 percent of the colonists so not a third obviously they're going to fight for a return to colonial rule and were loyal to the king they were conservative usually educated, wealthy, and they were fearful of what they considered mob rule, which is what they saw as a democratic republic was that mob rule. Uh, this is going to include your older generation because, for the most part, the younger, gen younger generation were more revolutionary. Uh, this will include the king's officers and a lot of the beneficiaries of the crown, so obviously they're not going to want to break away from that. This is also going to include your Anglican clergy and a large portion of their, fo their followers. And the most numerous of the loyalists, except for uh, in Virginia. They're most influential in the middle colonies, and uh, especially Charleston, South Carolina. They were the least numerous in the New England states, because that's the ones that are feeling the brunt of, you know, like the Navigation Acts and all the trade and all that. 
and they were ineffective basically at gaining the allegiance of these neutral colonists. Then you had your patriots. Now, sometimes they would be also be called Whigs, W-H-I-G-S, and this is named after Britain's opposition party. The American rebels fought both British soldiers and the loyalists. They were most numerous in New England, and they consisted a minority movement, so less than 50% of the colonial population, and they were better at gaining support from the colonials. Around 80,000 loyalists are going to flee the colonies during and after the war because they were regarded by patriots as traitors. Their estates were either confiscated and sold, or uh, in some cases they were, they were given as like spoils of war. And uh, those that were sold, they're going to help finance the war. Uh, around 50,000 of them are going to actually fight for the British. So the war from 1776 to 1777. Britain is going to change its focus to the mid-Atlantic states after abandoning New England in the wake of losses and challenges from 75 to 76. So your Battle of Long Island, which was the summer and fall of 1776, Washington's army is going to escape from Long Island to Manhattan and then to New Jersey. And that was actually through a series of very fortunate events, mainly the, uh, the mist, <laughs> allowing them to escape, or the fog, I should say, a very heavy fog allowed them to escape. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it. Uh, at this point was one of the, the best opportunities for Britain to actually crush the, the American uh, rebels. Obviously, it didn't happen. December of 1776, we get the Battle of Trenton. So by late, you know, by this late time, in 1776, uh, the revolutionary cause was basically unraveling. A lot of soldiers had deserted. Some were about to finish their term of service. Washington was going to realize that unless he could uh, lead a decisive victory, the, the whole cause might be lost. So Washington crossed the icy Delaware River on December 26th. This is going to be from Pennsylvania to New Jersey near Trenton. This will be several miles from where the Hessians were stationed. At Trenton, he will surprise and capture around a thousand Hessians who were sleeping off their Christmas party. The battle basically represented a reversal for Washington's army. So he's going to kind of gain some, um, gain some ground here. The Battle of Princeton. Now, this is going to be January 1777, so the next month. One week after Trenton, Washington will defeat a smaller British force at Princeton. This is in New Jersey, by the way. Uh, the British were forced to pull its outpost back to New York, and Trenton and Princeton were successful gambles by Washington that ended up reviving the, the slowly disintegrating colonial army. Later in 1777, the most important battle of the American Revolution will happen, and that is the Battle of Saratoga, S-A-R-A-T-O-G-A. -A. Britain will seek to capture New York and sever New England from the United States. Benedict Arnold will save New England by slowing down the British invasion of New York, making it possible for the Continental Army to surprise and eventually overwhelm the British forces. Arnold obviously would later betray the United States, by attempting to hand over control of the Hudson River to the British. If you watch Sleepy Hollow, they say it's because of the Judas coin. Um, most histori historians believe it's because he was passed over for a position in the in the army. He wasn't able, he, like uh, another fellow got the, the 
the rank that he wanted, and the British were paying him, I don't know, like a sack of gold or something. Either way, he was bribed over. He was butt hurt, and he was bribed. All right, so British General John Burgnine, and that's B-U-R-G-O-Y-N-E, will surrender his entire command at Saratoga on October 17th, 1777, to the American General Horatio Gates, H-O-R-A-T-I-O. Now, Saratoga became one of the United States history's most decisive battles. It's going to inspire French aid, which will ultimately ensure the American independence. Spain and the Netherlands will enter the war in 1779, and Britain was now facing basically a world war for themselves and the need to protect its empire across the globe, so they're having to spread their forces out, and it's getting pretty thin. Also, Saratoga will revise the faltering colonial cause because... You know, we've been doing this for a minute, and people were dying, and we weren't really seeing any good effects. So, the Articles of Confederation, basically our garbage government, was adopted in 1777. It was set up by the Second Continental Congress in order to create a permanent and constitutional government. Again, garbage. Uh, It wouldn't go into effect until 1781, basically because not all of the colonies or states could, could make up their mind on whether they wanted it. This is considered to be the first constitution in our history. It's going to last until 1789 when the constitution finally went into effect. And it will be drafted by John Dickinson, the author of those letters uh, from the Pennsylvania farmer. And the, uh, the one who helped Jefferson with the, the middle declaration of necessity and all that. Uh, Congress had, to, had the power to conduct war, handle foreign relations, and borrow money. But the Articles had no power to regulate trade, conscript troops, or levy taxes. Uh, Each state could also have their own laws. They could also have their uh, their own form of money. And if Congress tried to put a tax on them, basically they could just ignore it because what are they going to do? All right, the Franco-American alliance. So basically, you know, France and us. So, France is going to seek to exact revenge on Britain for its loss in the French and Indian War, and it saw the Revolutionary War as an opportunity to weaken Britain, or the British Empire. So, British America had England's uh, most valuable colonies. So, they're like, hey, if we can get them free and get them away from the British, this is going to hurt them economically, which will in turn, you know, start to hurt the empire. Now, France is initially worried that an open aid to America might provoke British attacks on French interests, so they're going to secret their supply to them. The Americans, Silas Dean and Benjamin Franklin, are going to arrange for a significant amount of munitions and military supplies to be shipped to America, and they're going to help forward the eventual Franco-American alliance. Marquis de Lafayette, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S, D-E, L-A-F-A-Y-E-T-T-E, was significant in helping the United States get this financial aid from France. Finally, the Declaration of Independence. This was a turning point for French aid. The action showed France that the Americans meant business. And the U.S. victory at Saratoga, you know, that kind of helped too. It's going to demonstrate the United States had an excellent chance of actually defeating Britain. So, the Franco-American Alliance of 1778, France promises the Americans the recognition of independence, so they're like, hey, you are a sovereign country, 
Both sides will bound themselves to wage war into the United States, won its freedom, or until both agreed to terms with Britain. So it was kind of all or nothing. Uh, many Americans are going to reluctantly accept this treaty. And part of this was because France was strongly Roman Catholic and, and had already been a traditional enemy of Britain, you know, for centuries. And it's, it's kind of like, we were British yesterday, and now you're going to help us. You know, it's kind of weird. So, the revolution itself is turning into a world war that's going to stretch Britain's resources. Like I said, Spain and the Netherlands will enter in 1779. Catherine the Great of Russia is going to organize the League of Armed Neutrality. So, basically, it lined up almost all the remaining uh, European countries. They'll make them neutrals. Basically, there's this passive hostility toward England. And this is going to be a result of Britain disturbing the Baltic shipping. This war is going to rage in Europe, North America, South America, the Caribbean, and Asia. Now, this war was fought on both the land and the sea frontier. So, the the West raged throughout most of the war. The Native American allies of Britain will attack the American frontier positions. So, so 1777 was actually known as the bloody year on the frontier itself. Joseph Brandt or Thayenanega, and that's T-H-A-Y-E-N-D-A-N-E-G-E-A. Uh, he was also known as Monster Brandt, was a Mohawk chief and the leader of the Iroquois Six Nations, will lead raids in western Pennsylvania and New York. He was forced to sign the Treaty of Fort Stanwyck, S-T-A-N-W-Y-K, which was the first treaty between the United States and the Native Americans. And because of this, this treaty, a lot of the Iroquois are going to lose most of their land. The United States will eventually seize the Illinois country from the British, the the forces will see several British ports along the Ohio River, like the uh, Kaskashki, the Kahawk. Sorry, I said that wrong. Kaiokia, and this is going to be in the East St. Louis area. Uh, the Vincennes in Indiana. So that first one is K A S K A S K I A, and the Kaiokia K A H O K I A, and the Vincennes V I N C E N N E S. This is going to help quiet any Native American involvement in the region. And it could have forced the British to cede the whole, you know, Ohio region and the Peace Treaty of Paris after the war. This this is actually still up for debate, though. The American Navy. So, John Paul Jones. We actually have, you know, some battleships named after him. Uh, he was the most famous of the U.S. naval leaders. He was actually Scottish-born. He was also the chief contributor uh, sorry, not he was, but they were, the Navy, was the chief con- uh, contribution to destroying the British merchant shipping. It also carried the war into the waters around the British Isles. Um, his actions, John Paul Jones, his actions didn't affect Britain's Navy, but like I said, it disrupted their, their shipping, which again hurts them economically. The people that did the most most damage, though, were the U.S. privateers. Basically, these were people who were, they weren't in the Navy, but they had armed ships. And that's how it worked. All right, in 1778, 
Britain, again, is going to change its strategy. It's going to be focused on the former southern colonies. So, like Savannah, Georgia was captured in late 1778, early 1779. Charleston, South Carolina will fall in 1780. And then at that time, it was the fourth largest city in America. Obviously, this is going to be a devastating loss to the American war effort. And it's going to re represent a heavier loss to the Americans than Saratoga was to the British. So, you know, big hit to us. Nathaniel Green will also succeed in clearing Georgia and South Carolina of most of its ship, uh, its uh, not ships troops. Eventually, uh, Lord Cornwallis is going to be forced to abandon Britain's southern strategy, and, and they're going to have to fall back to Chesapeake Bay at Yorktown. That leads us to the Battle of Yorktown. This is going to be 1781. It will be the last major battle of the war. So the French Admiral de Grasse. G-R-A-S-S-E, and he's going to be ahead of a fleet in the Caribbean, will blockade the Chesapeake Bay. British ships were unable to enter in order to give aid. Washington will lead a 300-mile march to Chesapeake Bay from New York, and he will be accompanied by Rochambeau's French Army, R-O-C-H-A-M-B-E-A-U. Uh, Washington will attack the British by land, while de Grasse is going to blockade them by sea, uh, so they can't go anywhere. On October 19, 1781, General Cornwallis will surrender his entire force of 7,000 men, and the war continues for about a year more, especially in the South, with very little consequence. So finally we get a peace. Britain was ready to come to terms after losses in India, the Caribbean, and the Mediterranean. Lord North's ministry in Britain is collapsing and ends up going, you know, by the way, in 1782, George III is going to lose his influence in Parliament. There will be a new Whig ministry that's going to be more sympathetic to the Americans that will replace the old Tory regime. With Britain's defeat assured, France now uh, is going to seek to weaken the United States. The U.S. diplomats believe France wanted to keep the U.S. border east of the Allegheny Mountains and give Western territories to its ally, Spain, for its help in the war. And Britain was eager to separate the U.S. from the Franco-American alliance. 1783, we get the Treaty of Paris. This is where Britain formally recognizing the United States as independent. It granted the U.S. these major boundaries that stretch to the Mississippi River in the west, the Great Lakes in the north, and to Spanish Florida in the south. Uh, Americans were allowed to retain a share in the valuable Newfoundland fisheries as well. Britain will also promise that troops will not take slaves from the U.S. Now, the American concessions. So, loyalists could not be further persecuted. Congress was to recommend to state legislatures that the confiscated loyal property be restored. American states were bound to pay back British creditors for pre-revolutionary debts. And the U.S. could not comply with many of these concessions. And, uh, and it later became a partial cause of the War of 1812 against Britain. We were supposed to do these things, and then we didn't. Uh, France is going to approve the British-American terms. Officially, there's not going to be a, a separate Franco-American peace that's going to go with this. Uh, America alone will gain from the war because Britain lost colonies and other territories. France became bankrupt, which eventually led to the French Revolution, and Spain pretty much didn't get anything. So we got everything. Uh, American society during the war. So over 250,000 Americans fought in the war. 10% of 
who fought, died, and this is the largest, largest percentage of any American war in history. Britain occupied a lot of the major cities like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Our war economy, um, all of society became involved in the war. So state and national governments were created. Men with military experience volunteered for positions. Some merchants actually loaned money to the army and to Congress. Others made fortunes from uh, war con wartime contracts. Most of the fighting was done by the poorest Americans. Obviously, it's, that's how it's usually done. Uh, young city laborers, farm boys, indentured servants, and sometimes slaves. African Americans actually fought on both sides. So you had about 5,000 in the Continental Army and nearly 30,000 in the British Army in return for promises of freedom. And Native Americans also fought with the British since they hoped to keep the what they consider to be the land-hungry American settlers out of their territory, and obviously there's going to be these bitter feelings that are going, to, are going to remain long after the war ended. Now, women did have a place in the war as well. They managed farms and businesses while men were serving in the army. Some traveled with the army as cooks and nurses, and you know some of them became politically active and expressed their thoughts more freely, like Mercy Otis Warren. In the 1760s and 1770s, she wrote satire, or, yeah, satire plays about British rule that helped actually turn political opinion against their mother country. And a later pamphlet in the 1780s actually helped shape the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Abigail Adams privately employed, implored her husband, John, to remember the ladies when creating a new government. In the 1760s and 1770s, women participated in anti-British rights, and formed the Daughters of Liberty, which is the female version of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, a few even participated in the war itself. You had, like, Deborah Sampson, who dressed up as a man and fought in the army until she was wounded. Mary Ludwig Hayes took over loading her husband's cannons after he collapsed. And that's just, you know, just a couple. You also, you had many, many women who were part of the war effort who fought in the war that, if if they hid well enough, no one would ever know. They would just look like young boys, which there were plenty of in the war. Like my great-great-great-something grandparent, he was a drummer boy in the war. All right, so why did the U.S. prevail in the Revolutionary War? Let's talk about the diplomatic standpoint. So, the Declaration of Independence opened the doors to the United States gaining foreign aid and also gained an alliance with France after the Battle of Saratoga. So, Spain and the Netherlands joined with us against Britain in 1779. The U.S. gained loans from France, the Netherlands, and others to pay the costs of the war. And there was this distrust among Britain and France and Paris that enabled the U.S. to play, you know, play one off the other. It's like... Going to mom and dad, going to one at a time, going, well, dad said I could do it. Well, mom said I could do it. Well, dad said this. Well, mom said that. So that's basically what we did. Anyway, we ended up being able to gain lands westward to the Mississippi River. From the political standpoint, the British government proved to be inept. King George III and Lord North demonstrated poor leadership. King George III was a little kooky. Lord North never should have been a uh, prime minister. Many Whigs in Britain will cheer the American victories in the, because they feared a Tory dictatorship in Britain. 
The American leaders were more successful at gaining support of the neutral colonists than were the loyalists, and the Second Continental Congress ultimately declared American independence from Britain, and it gained support of over a third of the American colonists. Each of the 13 colonies created sovereign republics that appealed to the American colonials. Women will play a vital role at home in support of the war, and American financier Robert Morris will play a major role in financing the war effort. From a military standpoint, the United States was too large a territory to conquer and occupy. When the British captured large American cities, it had little effect as most of the Americans were rural. They were like, okay, so you've got a city. Big deal. We all live out in the country. The British failed to take New England in 1775 <coughs> Sorry, and were forced to move southward to occupy the mid-Atlantic states. Eventually, the British are going to fail to maintain effective control in the mid-Atlantic states, and they're going to move to the southern states, where, again, they're going to be eventually defeated. The British alliance with the indigenous did not result uh, sorry did not result in any kind of decisive military victory george washington won important victories at critical times and kept the american cause alive so i'm talking about like trenton and princeton uh, britain had to fight against uh, american and french forces eventually they'd have to fight against the spanish and dutch forces in other parts of the world and uh so they basically they had to spread out their their resources too thinly that they weren't actually able to focus on one, take it down, and then move to the next. Uh, communication between Britain forces in North America and Great Britain were ineffective due to the obvious time lag. Uh, sometimes it could take up to two months to get messages from England to the colonies and back. Uh, and the French's Navy blockade of Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay will actually seal the fate of the British at the Battle of Yorktown, Yorktown you know, basically ending it. So, this is what you need to remember about the events leading up to the proclamation. You have the proclamation, did I say proclamation? Revolution, sorry. You have the proclamation of 17, 1763, then the Stamp Act of 1765, the Townsend Acts of 1767, the Boston Massacre of 1770, the Tea Act of 1773, the Committees of Correspondence, the Intolerable Acts of 1774, the First Continental Congress, Lexington and Concord, Second Continental Congress, and finally the Declaration of Independence. Now, your terms to know will be up shortly and your essay questions we will go over in class.